Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your love for us and the many ways that you have blessed our lives. We pray this morning as we open your word, Father, that you would uh, change us, that you would shape us into the people that you would have us to be. We thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like to preface my comments this morning with a couple of ideas. First of all, uh, my prayer with regards to my comments this morning is that they will foster some new discussions in our community and maybe add some fuel to some of the discussions that I know are already happening. And I'm going to try to be as clear as I can with what the Lord has laid on my heart to bring to you today. Uh, But you should also know that if for some reason I need to clarify with you, I'd be happy to buy you a cup of coffee or tea or orange juice or almost anything that you drink and we could talk about it. So I'd love to do that. Please let me know. The second thing is that as I was preparing this morning, I kept finding myself using the phrase social action. And I feel like I'm not completely happy with that phrase for this reason. I feel like it's a little bit of a misnomer when we talk about God's people. For people who, are, who find their identity in Jesus, the phrase social action isn't quite enough. It's missing that all-important connection between what we do with regard to people in need and our faith. When Jesus stepped foot on planet Earth, he was the focal point, the centerpiece of all of history. He set in motion his kingdom here. You remember Jesus taught us to pray that prayer that we just prayed together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so those of us who claim to follow Jesus, we are kingdom agents. We're going about doing kingdom work. The cross of Jesus was the single greatest act of freedom from oppression in history. The single greatest act of liberation. The single greatest act of healing and of provision and of grace And of redemption ever. And as direct beneficiaries of that awesome display of love, our response is to be agents of the kingdom, agents of liberty. We look around at the world and we say, I cannot allow my fellow human being for whom Christ died to suffer when I can do something about it. And so instead of the word social action, I will say kingdom work. Okay? Uh, And not that I'm against the word social action and they're useful in their own context and everything. But for today, we're going to use kingdom work. Uh, I took a class uh, a few years ago from a professor that I greatly respected. Who I respected for his knowledge of the scriptures, his ability to teach. And uh, I loved the class. It was an excellent class. One day in class, we got off on a little bit of a tangent. And we began discussing that passage in Matthew 25 where Jesus talks about what happens uh, in heaven. And it's the separation of the sheep and the goats. Do you remember that passage? And the qualifications there are Jesus is talking and he says, this is what you did for me when I I was in need, and this is what you didn't do. And that's sort of what separates them. 
And as we began talking about that passage, uh, I don't remember the exact words that my professor said, but the impact of what he said hit me. And he said something like, this passage about Jesus, Jesus' words terrify me. They make me afraid because I know what my response has been like with the poor. And it's very unqualified language. It's sort of, this is what you did for the poor. This is what you didn't do. And that's what separates the sheep and the goats. And, uh, and this professor, uh, he said, that, that makes me afraid. I feel fear about that. And the more I read the scriptures, the more impressed I am with the fact that living in right relationship with God is not possible without actively caring for those in need, for the poor, for the falsely imprisoned, for the hungry and the homeless. Not to belabor the point, but just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, here are a few examples. You can find specific references to God's people being characterized by or urged to do kingdom work in Exodus 23, Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 15 and 24, Psalm 140, Proverbs 31, Job 36, all the way through the prophets, the prophets are constantly railing against Israel for their lack of concern for the poor. Isaiah, Micah, Amos, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. In the Gospels, of course, we have Jesus' own words in several occasions. Uh, And we have the examples, like, uh, you remember Zacchaeus, when he had his encounter with with Jesus, and he was converted... His first response was to sell half of everything he had and give it to the poor. That was his response. In Acts, we see the disciples taking time to appoint people, well-qualified, able people, to care for the poor, the widows and the orphans. In Acts chapter 10, you remember Cornelius, the Roman centurion? One day he walks into his living room and there's an angel standing there. And he's, you know, he's... His jaw is on the floor. He can't believe what's happening. And the angel says to him, Cornelius, your prayers and your acts of charity have gone up before the Lord as a pleasing offering. Paul alludes to this in Galatians 2. And of course, James 1, that famous uh, statement where it says, pure and faultless religion is this, care for the widows and orphans in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And these are not the only scriptures that refer to some type of of kingdom work. There are lots more. All the way through the scriptures, from the law of Moses, through the prophets, Jesus' own words in the the New Testament and the Gospels, the entire scriptures, it seems that God is continuously calling his people to be active in kingdom work. We are to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then... We are to be God's hands and feet in that process. Now, there's a number of reasons why I think this is important for us to hear, but I'll just highlight two of those. First, with the growth in the last hundred years or so of this sort of cradle-to-grave government safety net that exists, uh, I feel like in some ways we've sort of abdicated our responsibility or, or maybe just lost track of our responsibility to be about the work of kingdom, kingdom work in our communities. Government systems, of course, tend to be bureaucratic and wasteful and dehumanizing. But because they exist, and because I pay taxes into them, it's easy for me to say that I've done my duty, right? If a person has a need, they can always go to uh, some government employee that, that I've essentially paid to take care of it. And that person will help them, 
there's this sense that the government is responsible. And if there's a need, we should get the government to take care of it, right? Call your senator and, and make it happen. And I'm not sure that people think, you know, necessarily that linearly about that process. But this is, I think, one of the ideas that has kind of pushed us or moved us away from the true idea of what kingdom care really should be about. And the second reason is theological. As I've already mentioned, there are many passages of scripture that seem to directly connect our eternal destiny or, or at least a right relationship with God with how we approach kingdom work. In many Protestant circles, there's a significant fear of projecting the idea of works-based righteousness. This idea that we become right with God by doing good deeds or or essentially, you know, if I, if I do enough good things and they outweigh my bad, then God will have to accept me. And I believe that the fear of this has been sort of another part of the impetus in a sort of a theological and practical drift away from being involved or a sense, a, a sense of needing to be involved in, any, in suffering in any meaningful way. We're afraid that if we go out and do good things in the world in Jesus' name, uh, people will think that it's those actions that get us into heaven or make us right with God. And I want to be clear that I'm fully committed to the idea of salvation by grace through faith alone. But I also believe that when James says faith without works is dead, I think he means that faith without works is dead. <laughs> really. If we say that we are people of God and followers of Jesus... The proof, says Isaiah, from our passage this morning, and, and again, echoing a host of biblical writers, he says the proof can be seen in our actions towards those who suffer. Now, I went to a very small, very Christian school in uh, Papua New Guinea. I was an MK. And one, uh, for a short period of time, I had a Bible teacher who was a, just an interesting, fascinating guy, almost a caricature of a guy. And he was from the South, and he uh, had a really nasally Southern twang. If you think Willie Nelson, that's right about it. And he'd been in the Navy, and he had Navy tattoos. And uh, I think he'd been a boxer, too, because his nose had been flattened right down on his face. And, uh, and he would come into class in his jeans and his cowboy boots and his uh, you know, hat. He'd set the hat down, and he'd sit down at the desk at the front of the room put his feet up on the desk and lecture to us like that. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that's what he did. He would just lecture. And the one thing that I remember from being in that class, uh, because he said this phrase maybe three or four times a week, he would sit down like that, you know, at the desk. Not always. Sometimes he stood up. But a lot of the time, he would sit down and he would begin to lecture. And right about the time that we would begin to fall asleep or you know, engage in even less productive pursuits. His feet would come down on the floor with a boom and his hand would smash the top of the desk and he'd stand up and he'd say, you got to get to know God or something like that. I can't do it the way he did, but you got to get to know God like that. And as much as we despite, well, as much as we, that wasn't our favorite class. Uh, it turns out he was right. He was right. We have to get to know God. 
And Isaiah is indicting the people of Israel in this passage. And essentially he's telling them, you don't really know God. They were practicing the forms of religion. And he mentions all the classics, going to church, learning about God, obeying, you know, some laws, being humble, even fasting and prayer. And then they would do these things. And then they would say to God, hey, God, don't you see we've been really hard on ourselves this week? Aren't you impressed with us? But God is saying, if you really think that that's what I'm interested in, you don't really know me. What truly pleases God is the fast that is associated with the work of the kingdom. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned and oppressed. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Give shelter to the homeless. These are things that please God. These are true religion, true holiness. And it's easy, given our wealth and our busyness, to insulate ourselves from difficult surroundings, especially here in the Western world and, of course, here in Houghton. We find ourselves insulated from poverty, suffering, oppression. And for me, it's not that I'm trying to ignore those things. I just don't see them all the time, right? I've got a family. I've got work. I'm busy. I'm very, very safe. And so from that place of safety and busyness, it becomes natural for me to think that if I'm going to church and I'm obeying, you know, most of the laws and I'm trying to be humble and I I pray and occasionally I even fast, If I'm doing those things that I'm pleasing God. But Isaiah says here that God's heart beats for those in need. If we aren't helping those who are suffering, we don't really know him. Worship that truly pleases God has to involve the alleviation of human suffering. We have to get to know God. Now, I'm a relatively recent convert to Wesleyanism. When I came on staff here in 2004, I began to seriously study Wesleyan theology and history. And frankly, I fell in love with both. I found Wesleyan theology to be a a theological haven of sorts from my mostly Baptist and slightly Calvinist-leaning roots. And uh, I was honestly impressed by the legacy of kingdom work that the Wesleyan church holds. The Wesleyan church was literally born out of a desire to be God's people in active ways in our world, specifically with regard to slavery. In 1843, at the Utica Convention, uh, when the Wesleyan Methodist Connection was formed, uh, there were nine different churches who got together at that convention. And they were mostly uh, some variety of Methodist church, but there was a Baptist church and a congregational church there. And Luther Lee, who was one of the leaders at that time, summarized their reasons for getting together in this way. He said, uh, first of all, because they were Methodist in theology, they couldn't be a part of a Calvinist denomination. Secondly, he said, if we stay as our individual churches you know, kind of scattered around, we're not going to have the voice that we need to really address the issues of today that need to be addressed. And, and thirdly, he said, because there's no major denomination free from the sin of slavery, we need to do this. And so believing that holiness and right relationship to God is not possible without dynamic kingdom work and that people of God actively combat human suffering and oppression wherever they encounter it, these early Methodists took this enormous step. And throughout its history, the Wesleyan Church has continuously been active as kingdom agents, addressing a wide range of issues. Things, of course, like slavery and prohibition and women's rights and others. This is our history. It's who we are. We've been handed down a pretty incredible legacy of kingdom work. A legacy of addressing the evils in our society with the love of Christ. 
It's a solid understanding of the connection between faith and action. And I'm grateful to have sort of an adoptive claim on that, on that legacy. But not only do we have a strong legacy, we also, this faith community has some solid and effective practice. And I know that not all of you are Wesleyans here, and I'm praying for you that you'll come into the light <clears throat> if you're not. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Actually, uh, I do appreciate that we have a variety of theological positions here and that we can come together from those differing positions and worship together. I think it's a great witness of Christ's love. Uh, but our, as I was saying, um, our community of faith, we're doing some good things in terms of kingdom work. We have a, an active missions outreach arm that's doing kingdom work in our body, in our community, in our region, and in the world. And I think you've seen recently, for example, in the highlights and in the bulletin and up here on the, well, that screen, on the screens, uh, information about the food pantry and, and the food pantry is serving a number of families and individuals in the community. Something that's a bit more behind the scenes is the church's benevolence fund, which is uh, frequently used to assist people in all sorts of different crises that, that happen. There are many missionaries supported by our church, as well as our own Haiti and medical dental team. And of course, we've been heavily involved with the district uh, Haiti initiative. Next week, we'll pray for and commission the Royal Family Kids Camp. And I know many of you are involved in that work. Royal Family Kids Camp is a powerful example of kingdom work to the least of these. And we want to be sure that as a body, we support and pray for and stand behind this important ministry. Likewise, I know that many of you are involved in foster care. I can't think of a, a better example of kingdom work in foster care and adoption. I've been in your homes and I've seen on your refrigerators the pictures of the children that you sponsor through World Hope and World Vision and other organizations like that. And in this way, we have given and are giving of our resources to alleviate suffering. That's kingdom work. And you should know that this church is committed to continuing to examine our corporate response to the evils that exist in our world. Uh, the missions committee, uh, under the leadership of Pastor Wes and the elders, have begun to pray and think about what else should we be doing as a body, corporately? What should we be doing? What would God have us to do and to be with regard to kingdom work here in Houghton, uh, Houghton New York, in 2012? Uh, Last year, it might have been the year before, the, the missions committee put a, a small line in the budget titled simply Justice Issues because we want to be sort of simultaneously seeking God's face on what it is he would have us to be and also putting into place the systems and the structures that will enable us to act when, when we decide what it is God has for us in this way. Please pray. Please pray with us as we think about this. Now, today is Freedom Sunday, so designated by World Hope International. And it's designed to bring to light the issue of slavery that exists today. And slavery is a great evil, as you know. And at a time when we celebrate freedom and our country's independence, it's appropriate to remember those in the world who are not free. The U.S. State Department estimates that there are more than 27 million slaves in the world today, with six uh, or 800,000 of those being trafficked across international borders and sold as property. And World's, World Hope's prayer in partnering with the Wesleyan church is that a new generation of Wesleyans would reconnect with their roots 
and raise up a new crop of Wesleyan abolitionists to fight this great evil. People committed to this important kingdom work. And you can find more details about that in your bulletin insert or on World Hope's website. In addition to that, we have two groups in our own district, anti-trafficking groups in our district. There's one based out of the Eastern Hills Wesleyan Church called the Stop Task Force, and one based out of the Levant Wesleyan Church called Freedom for All Today. And if you'd like more information about those, uh, you can find it on district website or just talk to me and I'll connect you with the right people. Finally, in conclusion, uh, the last letter that John Wesley ever wrote the week before he died, was to William Wilberforce. And if you remember, Wilberforce was a champion in the British Parliament uh, in the anti-slavery movement and was instrumental in in having slavery outlawed in England. Now, Wilberforce had been converted by Wesley, and at this time in 1791, he was beginning to become known for his vocal opposition to slavery. And Wesley wrote to encourage him in his work, and he said this, regarding slavery, he said, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. I pray that we as Houghton Wesleyan Church would be energetic and enthusiastic about the kingdom work that God has called us to, may we not be weary of well-doing. May we pray for God's kingdom to be here on earth as it is in heaven. And may we go in the name of God and in the power of his might. God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, stunned that you use us and that that we can be about your work in this world, Father. I pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity about what you would have us to do. And Father, give us the courage to act. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.